Namo tassa pakawato arahato samma samputassa Namo tassa pakawato arahato samma samputassa Namo tassa pakawato arahato samma samputassa Bhuttang dhammang sankhang namasami Hello everyone, good evening, good morning, good afternoon. I had a friend from Latvia wrote that he's going to be on this Zoom. <laughs> I don't know. If you're there, Sasha, hi. <laughs> that would be two in the morning for him, I think. My parents are from Latvia, so it's, it's kind of exciting if someone from Latvia is tuning in. Um, it's, uh, we've had a beautiful day here at the monastery, both the environment is very warm and all the colors are changing for autumn, but more significantly our Anagarika Gabriel uh, took the going forth, the Pabaja ordination in the brown robes, and he is now Nandano. I get it right, Nandano. So we had a lovely, lovely ceremony. It's one who delights, one who rejoices, and these names that were given in the Pali language, one who rejoices, it, it's always referred to liberation rather than rejoicing for worldly things. So it's a lovely, lovely name. He's from Montreal, so he's Quebecois, and his uh, family came from Montreal. We're in a 25-person allowance in our lockdown protocols in Ontario, so we were just we were just able to get we had about 20 right i think and then our sangha was doing the chanting so that was that was really nice really really lovely we don't have um many of those ceremonies now because uh, can't do it we've also been trying to figure out how we can do our ketina ceremonies and so we usually get we're we're a small community so we get about 200 people coming um, and we're going to do 25 at a time for about, how many days do we have? About five, six planned? Six confirmed. We have six confirmed days where um, there'll be a Thai, two Thai groups and then there'll be a Bangladeshi group and a group from the Ottawa Buddhist Society and so on. So I wish, Bita, you could come with 25 people and but it's not going to happen. Anyway, it's some, some kind of a... Uh, people want to make contact, they want to be here, it's a beautiful place, so that's very touching. Um, so we're doing well, we're doing very, very well. I was uh, teaching, I did three, three retreats in a row just now. I did a three-day retreat with uh, uh, the Joyce and JC organized from Singapore and, and Malaysia, and then a six-day retreat with the Ottawa Buddhist Society that some of you were on, and then right after that a one-day retreat with the Toronto group. And uh, I, I, I was surprised to find that like in a six-day retreat on Zoom, I was more tired than if I was teaching in person. And that, that surprised me. I thought for some reason it would be easier, but there's something about Zoom that takes a particular kind of focus that I guess we're not none of us are used to and I asked other people they seem to agree that it's a format that can be can be tiring uh, 
So next time I'll make sure I put some time between the retreats. It was a bit ambitious. So by the end of it, I was a bit gaga, as we say. But I, I survived somehow. Um, but people are grateful, so it's nice to be able to offer something. Uh, and then yesterday, was it yesterday, right? Yesterday we had a, a meeting of 50 of the leaders of our um, monasteries where the abbots or abbesses are, are non-Thai. I think I said it right way to say it. Westerners, so monasteries in California and Australia and New Zealand. One in, two in Thailand. Achanachala was there. Two in Thailand. Uh, four or five here. So it was very interesting. Uh, all, my old, all my old buddies like Ajahn Suchito and uh, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Tiradamo were all on these little screens. So we're trying to connect as a Sangha and remember our, our, our brotherhood and our sisterhood and sort of stay in contact. So that was a, we did two sessions of three hours over a couple of days. So we're, we're, uh, we're plugged into the technology um, and hopefully in a good way. And, and our monks here are very competent. So for me, it's quite easy. I just have to sit here and say a few things and then in the background, everyone's doing good things. So here we are. Um, I had a, I had a few questions that came in, and um, I'll try to combine them. And, and the theme the theme that always seems to come up with everyone is what, what is letting go? What do you mean by letting go? How do I let go? <laughs> That's usually the kind of desperate plea. How do I let go enough of the suffering? And it's. Uh, why, it's one of those words or phrases that you get, you hear so much in a culture, you, you're kind of not sure what it actually means sometimes because different people might interpret it in different ways and, and different monks or nuns or lay teachers might interpret it in different ways. So as I always say, these are for reflection. These ideas that are presented are for reflection. Um, I was fiddling with the paper, so I was making noise. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. when, when I'm speaking, I need something to do with my hands. It must be some kind of nervous energy, right? Anyway, um, so letting go, what, what does that mean? And again, I just offer this the way I use that language. Um, another person might use it in another way, and it, it wouldn't mean that they're mutually exclusive, that it might, might be mutually supportive. Or it might mean I'm wrong, uh, that's okay too. But you can only see if it's significant, if, it, if you test it out and if it works for you, then great. If not, don't worry about it. <laughs> Send me a note of complaint if you want or whatever. Um, so, so letting go, well, one way to look at our, our Buddhist life is to, is to consider that we have, we're kind of, we have two, two modes of employment, let's say. One mode of employment is that we are living with our conventional responsibilities as individuals in family and society and work on this planet um, with our genders and our nationalities and our um, strengths and weaknesses and our family ties and so on and so forth. Our individuality as people in society. Um, and, and, and that part of our employment is to do our very, very best to live morally, 
to live with a way of consideration and sensitivity to others, to the planet, um, to live in a way where we develop ourselves, uh, develop skills so that we can have a good livelihood, uh, skills so that we can help others, uh, skills so that we can enjoy creativity, and so on and so forth. So this is lifestyle, morality, and it's the usual um, stuff of being a human being, individuality, um, and this is, this is where non-attachment or letting go sometimes gets confusing because if you, if you just use the word non-attachment as a kind of blanket statement about everything in life, then you get, you get silly things like, uh, you know, mother says I'm attached to my children. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I'm glad my mom was attached to me and took care of me, right? So, you know, it can sound kind of like you're, you're not a social being at all, but you are, and you're involved in things. So, so non-attachment isn't, it's not that simplistic. And um, so that's one way of, let's say, of, of employment in, in, as a, as a card-carrying Buddhist. The other way of employment is that you're the witness. And, and that runs parallel to your normal individual life. So by witness, I mean that you are aware of stream of consciousness. That not only are there the events of the day, the ups and downs and complexities, but also they're occurring in a stream of consciousness as sights and sounds, as tastes, as flavors, as mental events, as memories, as disappointments, as excitements, as worries, as fears, as um, fevers and all the rest of it. So this is when we talk about the five khandhas. We don't use the five khandhas when we're talking about our individual experiences. There we talk about self, we talk about responsibility, we talk about livelihood, we talk about uh, using money well, we talk about developing skills. And that's where the ideas of ambition uh, and, and, and striving and working hard to become a competent person in society. But then as, you, as you're doing that, if you're going to university or or you're going to work and you're doing your very, very best, um, then the events of life are constantly impinging on your senses. So it's not just a simple thing of going to work, it's going to work and meeting someone who is rude to you, right? It's going to work and meeting someone who's polite to you. It's going to work when you've got a headache and you don't want to work. It's going to work when you want to go to work. It's all of that. It's all the complexity of our inner world that faces our individual situation. And witnessing all of that is what we mean by awareness. You know, awareness isn't simply functional uh, care, like I'm, I'm aware that I'm picking up a clock or I'm aware that I'm carrying a plate from A to B so I don't drop it. That's just simple mindfulness, being careful. Awareness has a much, much deeper sense to it and that's that you, one is aware of one's moods. One's aware of liking and disliking. Uh, one is aware of memory as, as, a, as, as a thing. One is aware of anger as anger. Fear is fear. That's very hard to do. That's very hard to do. And that's where the issues of, of letting go and non-attachment um, are really used. Okay? They're not used in, in, a, in a social sense. So letting go then, um, let's say you Let's say you ordered some plumbing parts for your monastery. 
We're, we're forever fixing things. The monks here are very good at fixing things. So let's say we ordered uh, some plumbing part right? and saw someone researched it, did really good research, then Gabrielle before or Nirasa or Richard or someone else uh, ordered it online and then it came here and it arrived and it wasn't what we wanted. Ever had that happen? Okay, that's called disappointment, right? Disappointment is a natural phenomenon, right? It's just, can you, can you imagine living a life where you'll never be disappointed? Tell me where. <laughs> so, disappointment is a natural phenomenon. But I didn't get what I wanted. And this is where letting go begins to be understood. Now, on a, on a conventional level, individuality, we have to get the right parts for the plumbing. So we contact the vendor, we tell them that was wrong, we send it back, the specs were wrong. We do something. We don't practice non-attachment. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it does matter. We need to get the plumbing fixed. It does matter. But the attachment, the attachment we're talking about is the suffering, the inner suffering that I'm experiencing because I didn't get what I wanted. Trivial example, right? So maybe it's really easy to let go. What would let letting go there be it be accepting the fact this is wrong I have to do something about it it might have no no emotional power on me at all it just feel I feel some oh well okay do it again oh well no big deal but still I would feel disappointed but I'd be aware of the disappointment as an object right I wouldn't be the become the subject of the disappointment so let's say it's something more uh, extreme let's say uh, I have a Zoom meeting coming, right? And my router isn't working. So we contact the vendor. We say, we have to have a router by Friday morning. Either Beta's not going to be happy. <laughs> and uh, so the vendor says, sure, sure, sure. It'll come, it'll come, it'll come. Four o'clock, it's not here. Five o'clock, it's not here. Six o'clock, it's not here. And seven o'clock, Beta's disappointed too. Now, I'm disappointed, but maybe I was really, really wanting that router, and he promised that router, right? So now the disappointment becomes bigger. Why does it become bigger? Because there's more desire. I have more expectation. I have more need, and I need it. Now, again, letting go doesn't mean that I don't, you know, tell the vendor, you know, that was unfair. I can do all of that, and I would do it maybe, or whatever, someone maybe, I don't know. Something has to be done. But, in stream of consciousness now, there's a real frustration of desire. It's not just a trivial desire where I didn't get something that wasn't that important or I could wait on. Now, I really needed it. And so, the stronger the desire, the greater the frustration, the greater the suffering, right? And the greater difficulty in letting go. So, what would letting go be in this case? Well, you'd have a much more powerful emotional impact, right? because the expectation was much more powerful. So the expectation creates the disappointment. One conditions the other. Uh, and it was a reasonable expectation because, you know, you don't want to make Beats unhappy. <laughs> you want to keep Beats happy. You know, she's an important person, etc., etc., right? <laughs> and, and, and so then, what's letting go in that case? What's letting go in that case? Well, letting go, I think, starts with acceptance. And what would acceptance be here? It would be, well, not just the router hasn't come, 
but that the emotional response or reaction to that disappointment now is really upset me, right? And it's more strong now. And, 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 and recognizing, oh, this is, this is a strong mode of disappointment. This feels strong. And then what would I have to do to accept it? I'd have to be very patient and very careful of thought because that disappointment would want to drive my thoughts into annoyance, anger, whatever, or, and, and it would be a habit of mine. Because with, you know, when I got really disappointed in the past, then I tended to whinge and cry and complain, maybe. And then if it's very strong, then that same habit kicks in. So the habit kicks in, and now I'm just florid with thought. That was good. Uh, <laughs> I'm really thinking. Uh, but it's not just thinking about the router that I need. It's me thinking, those idiots, those vendors, I'm never going to use it again. I hope Bita forgives me. <laughs> so, so you can see that, that now that letting go is not as trivial. Now, take another example. Let's say you're married and your partner cheats on you. Now that is a serious disappointment. Right? That's not a trivial disappointment. That's not an anger-making disappointment. That's a confusing psychological mess that now you have in your own mind through no fault of your own, let's say. Let's say. Um, so now you're blindsided by something terribly painful. All your trust systems are now out of whack. And, and, and now what do I do? You could see how difficult letting go is there. And what would letting go be in that case? Well, you'd have to be very careful with your mind and take care of yourself until your psychological system got some balance, right? You get very angry or very upset or very depressed or very confused. All your, all your uh, navigation, psychological navigation systems would be awry. The same word non-attachment, letting go, but much, much more difficult. But the principle would be the same. Could you practice awareness of the mood without running to thought? Probably not. Probably impossible. But could you be aware that once you start to run to thought and it gets very, very negative, could you come back to some object of awareness like the body? And if you had trained yourself in doing that over a long period of time, you'd have some way of navigating this horrible, horrible, horrible disappointment called betrayal, right? Because you'd be able, you know, your mind would start to run with it and say, no, no, what does my body feel like? That would be letting go. Letting go, you know, sometimes people think, well, letting go means you're not going to feel anything. No, it's, no, it's not that. It's, you are fully aware of feeling, actually. Letting go is full feeling, full awareness of feeling, but not letting the I sense, the me sense, the ego sense run with it into more destructive patterns of hatred, of revenge, of resentment. And if, if that happened, like something, and I, I meet people, this happens, it takes a long time. The memories are very strong, uh, the pain is very strong, and then those memories trigger off thoughts of resentment and anger and so there, the letting go would not be just like one moment, oh, just let go of this, obviously, no. Letting go would be a constant sense of accepting the way things are and saying, ooh, this hurts. Life is painful. This is, this is really, really painful. 
And if you could do that, if you could, do, you could recognize that, that this is painful, then you'd be in the driver's seat of awareness. But that doesn't mean the pain, would, <laughs> you'd, the pain wouldn't end like that. That's what some people think. Well, if I just let go and I'm aware, then I'll have no pain. No, no, it doesn't work that way. It's much more complicated. Why? Because we're not enlightened. We're not arahants. We have habits. We have patterns. We have expectations. And, and we have emotions. We're emotional beings. We're not just rational beings. And emotions have their own program in life that, 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 that come to us in those ways. So if you, under, if, you, if, you, if you could understand, if you go back to the most trivial example of just your ordin, ordinary garden variety Amazon disappointment, right? And you actually use that to say to yourself, oh, disappointment feels like this. Then you'd be practicing for, and I hope it never happens to you, right? But you'd be practicing to create a foundation for all disappointments. Just that little bit, just the, just the fact that you can you can you know get something from Amazon or whoever you order your things from, um, and 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 feel the disappointment. Say to yourself, "Oh, disappointments like this," and just do that and see how actually the 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 mood is unpleasant, but the peace of awareness is silent, right? And that's the same silence that you use when you watch the end of the out-breath, when you listen to sound, when, whatever. So we, this, this is the principle I've always used. I, I, I try to develop awareness of the way things are, which is non-grasping, which is non-attachment, which is letting go, awareness of the way things are, in the ordinary, in the um, mundane, in the non-complex, in the simple sound, bodily feeling, uh, color, very simple things, and do that a lot so there's an intuition and an intuitive understanding of what awareness is and presence is. And keep recognizing this is the path, this awareness, this knowing, this is the path. So that when complex things come like this, you, you, you have all the equipment and conditioning and, and sensitivity to be able to, to deal with it. So let's say the, the second example, the router, like where, I, where my desires are now um, more strong to have this thing, but they're not, you know, I'm not an emotional wreck afterwards. Uh, I can then start to contemplate dependent origination. I can say, oh, with expectation as condition, there is this disappointment. This disappointment, this disappointment came because I wanted that. Now that wanting wasn't bad, it was for a good cause, uh, uh, for doing a Zoom meeting and so on, it was a good cause, uh, but I, there's the wanting there, I want things to change. And then you get Lompacha's admonition, it's uncertain, it's uncertain. And you start to use that, you know, so, so the hope comes, oh great, you know, the, the vendor said, it's going to come, it'll be there, yeah, Beta will be happy, it's going to be great, we'll be okay. And then someone, some monk says to you, Bhante, it's uncertain. And you feel deflated, actually. You want to say to Bhante, leave me alone. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to know the truth. You want, you want the joy of, of, uh, of this thing coming. 
But the monk is very kind to you. He says, it's uncertain, be careful. And, and, and then you remember, yeah, this is uncertain. So the, the, the excitement of expectation is moderated. And the more you look at disappointments, and the more you see that they're coming from expectations, the more you won't buy into the seeming infallibility of expectations, the seeming um, success of expectations, because it's uncertain, it's uncertain. And then you can still do what you have to do, but now your mind begins to abide with awareness rather than attaching to expectation. And that's where the attachment comes. The expectation comes up into consciousness. Uh, no, we need this. There's a need, there's a desire. It's a good desire, it's wholesome. Um, the vendor says yes, and, and my expectation, it will come. I make a conclusion which is uncertain. But if in that conclusion it might come, it would be good if it came, but if it doesn't come, I'll be cool, right? I, I don't attach to the expectation, then even though I might feel disappointment, there's more chance that I won't get upset, right? So you start to, you start to unpack where your suffering comes from and you start to make intentions when those next, those structures, this kind of structure comes up, you start to be more aware of what the causes of suffering will be in the future. Attachment to expectation in, in this case. And there are m many kinds of cases, right? If there is something in your, in your experience, in your mind, in, in your life, which is kind of plagues you. And this, this is the way ex, um, attachment works. We just get, we get so conditioned to thinking in certain ways and certain patterns which are unwholesome um, that then, because we've been doing it for so long, then we get into a more, we, we, we even make it more complex by trying to get rid of it. And we think that getting rid of it is letting go. And this is a common error we've all made and we continue to make. And this is what we call vibhavatanha. And that, the, the one third, one aspect of craving, vibhavatanha, the desire to not have. And I was suggesting on a couple of the retreats that this would be a very good theme to look at. And I was calling it resistance. So, um, if I have a habit of worrying, and then I'm attached to worry, I have to stop worrying, then what do I do? I resist the worry and I try to get rid of it, which seems a good idea, but actually I'm not really aware of worry, I'm just a, a sense of a self fighting to get rid of this worry, and it just gets very, very complex. And so quite often we, are at, we, we never make the step of actually being aware. We jump from the habit of mind to the repression of, of that habit. We just go from one to the other. And that's why Lompo Semedo's phrase, which I keep suggesting to you, it, it's like this, is that entry into non-attachment. Because if you really do that, it's like this. I mean, you really do it. Like if, if I'm worrying, you know, oh God, I'm worrying. No, no, no. What's it like to worry? It's like this. Then I have the basis for right practice. If I don't do that and I just resist 
and then go into it and resist and go into it and go resist it's just an, it's a it's a horrible cycle and it and it doesn't really liberate because it doesn't have awareness in it it doesn't have acceptance in it it doesn't have knowing in it it simply has an ideal and a kind of fed upness i've had enough of this get rid of it and that's what we call vibhavatanha so one of the things that's, that's kind of interesting to do it if you have these habits, if not, good on you, but most of us do, <clears throat> these sort of um, insidious habits which just haunt the mind. And, and rather than just kind of judging it, first of all, you know, just notice that there's a lot of thinking. Wow, I'm really thinking a lot today. There's a lot going on in there. And then just, you know, it's really powerful to ask yourself a question. Like, where, why does the mind need to do this? Where is this coming from? And then don't think. Don't try to analyze it, because it's interesting, when you put a question to the mind that you don't really want an intellectual answer, you're just willing to wait, you bring in awareness. If you want to have an answer, then you get off into analytical thought, and so on and so forth. But if you just, like, your mind is really, like, worried about something, you just say, what is worry anyway? Your mind stops for a fraction. And then you are no longer resisting that, you know that. And then it starts up again. And then you ask yourself, what is worry anyway? And then you wait in silence. And that returns you to the silence of awareness. And then it comes up again. And all of us, I think, no, these, these habits are, are, are powerful, powerful habits. They're not trivial. Even though the thinking mind can sound very boring and trivial, the habit of compulsive thinking, driven by emotion, driven by all kinds of things that came from childhood or wherever. They're very powerful habits. So what you can, what you can do is begin to say, okay, that's a, that's a difficult habit of mine. I'm going to see, what does resistance mean? What would resistance mean in terms of worry? Well, I want to get rid of it. I want to solve the problem. What is, what is, what is worry like? It's like this. And that kind of language is, is exploratory, it's intuitive, it's, it's not a demand that you be different, and that's what awakens you. And from that, it's a very, very, um, it's a more interesting way to approach it, isn't it? Rather than just this, this battle. And then you begin to really understand yourself. Not because of a book, not because you've been told not to attach or whatever you might think, because you'll be reborn as a rabbit next lifetime <laughs> or whatever we're, we're taught right but rather because you're actually interested in your own suffering huh and 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 then you start to get a lot of insight someone asked about uh, in one of the questions so kind of to segue away from that from 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 that theme into this question about taking care of parents and um i get a, i get that question a lot um and and realize that taking care of parents uh, is, is, is if the relationship is one which wasn't all that harmonious or, or there's some dysfunction that hasn't been worked out, this is, this is one of the toughest things to do. Now the culture might say, you know, you have to take care of your parents, you know, and, and that's a good thing to say. But let's say that the, the relationship with the parents wasn't so great. Then you've got, not only are you trying to take care of an old person, you've got some emotional baggage and, 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 and cultural stuff, which is very, very complex and difficult to deal with. So to this person's question, they're obviously really trying to care for their parents, 
Um, I would say be conscious of, you know, be conscious of a feeling of not liking your parents. You know, imagine trying to think that you should like your parents all the time and your parents are in a bad mood. It's, it's ridiculous. So maybe some, sometimes we feel guilt. So we don't like our parents sometimes. And they, but if you're conscious of that, I, you, know, you know, Mom, I wish you'd shut up. <laughs> or Dad, can't, can't you just go have a smoke or something? And I mean, to be honest about that, it's very, very important. But then it's you to do the right thing. But I think what's very important in caring for parents is that you have some space of quietness, if you have a space, where you can process the day's tensions and stresses that you've picked up. It's, it's difficult enough, you know, caring for someone. It's, it's a beautiful thing if it works, having said that. You know, it can be the most beautiful thing. When you have a good relationship with your parents, it'll push you, but it's, it's easy to do because it's coming from love, right? But quite often the, that, those factors aren't so easy to come by because of whatever conflicts have, have been there. And then there's all the feelings of guilt. You know, that I'm a bad person for feeling... No, that, that, that you have to know. And, and, and then do your very best. But the best way to, to develop a path there is to have time on your own where you process the tensions and, and annoyances and let them be conscious. Like if you feel really frustrated or angry, fine. Um, I'd recommend you go for a walk in the woods, but if you're in Singapore... <laughs> That's more difficult. <laughs> go and don't go shopping. <laughs> um, but some way, I mean, anyway, really go shopping. That's fine. I mean, just to get to get out of the 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 heaviness of of some of these relationships. It can be very very strong. It's no one's fault. It's just you know life life is complicated sometimes. And then when you come back into it. See if you can notice the triggers, the triggers that family life, you know, what is it about a certain person in your family that makes you so annoyed? And try to see the relationship. Oh, when the person says this, I feel annoyed. And, and become conscious of that annoyance rather than think you shouldn't feel annoyed. Try to practice right speech, right? Even though you want to say something nasty, or cruel or, or, or divisive, don't go there. Because the remorse from wrong speech is like triple the work, 10 times the work, isn't it? Then you feel really horrible. But if you blew it and you, you, know, you called your mom a turkey or something, <laughs> then uh, <laughs> go, say you're sorry, start again and don't say it again, right? You do your best. Uh, see, we're not perfect. <laughs> And, and the, the problems <coughs> with idealism is we think that we're, some, we're not emotional beings. But we are emotional beings. We get upset, we're tired, you know, we, we feel frustrated, we, we have sickness. So you kind of keep doing your best. And then try to get other people to help. Quite often the problem with taking care of parents is one person gets identified as the caregiver and everyone says, oh, oh, she's doing it. Usually it's she or he's doing it. And hey, wait a minute, guys, there's 10 of us. How come I'm the only one doing it? That's even more frustrating, more frustrating. So, so these, are, these, are, these are difficult things. So if you have Kalyanamitta, someone you can talk to, 
if you have a regular meditation practice, if you can do mantras, if, if in the relationship when you're caring for someone it's getting stressful, if you can get an, an under, underlying mantra under your breath, iti piso or may all beings be well, may all beings be well, where you, pr you, you, you bring up a barrier to the listening mind, you're not just kind of drawn into it, and that no one will notice, don't worry about it. People usually don't notice each other, they only notice themselves. <laughs> and, and then you just, you know, you chant something, um, may all beings be well, may all beings be well, and so on. Then you have a protection, you have protection, and you notice the kind of reactivity of the mind. It's a Dharma practice. For me, it worked well. I was very lucky. I had no issues with my mom. It's really one of the best things I ever did, taking care of my mom. Took care of dad for three months when he died. That was good too, but, but it was very special. I had, I had a lot of strong Dharma practice. I had incredibly good friends who took, brought me Donna every day and took care of me. Some of them are here right now. So I had a whole, whole culture, society, taking care of me, helping me to do this. Um, but sometimes that, you know, it was, it was exceptional. So for me, there's a lot of joy from having done that, a lot of joy. So I'm, I'm you know, if you can do it well, then the, the, the exhaustion isn't, isn't the problem, really. It's just exhaustion. It's the emotional conflicts that are draining that can really, really wear you down. That's, I think, where burnout comes from. Let me just check if there's some more questions there. Shunzing, you want to acknowledge and then I'll look for some questions? The Dhamma talk? No? Okay. Thank you so much, Sean Paul, for your helpful insights and pointers. Let's all say three sadhus together. Uh, let me see. I'm doing Buddhist studies recently. Instead of feeling stressed over the Dharma exam, what kind of attitudes ought one to have when learning or studying the Dharma so that unwholesome thoughts and feelings do not arise? Don't worry about failing. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're in a culture where top marks is, is the measure of your goodness, where success is the measure of your worth, then you are, are, you're buying in to a cultural system which doesn't value your heart, it values your brain. <laughs> and brains can really suffer. <laughs> now, if you're really studying Dharma, Buddhist studies, then you have to see that just being able to nail an exam on dependent origination and get all the 12 factors right, um, if you don't use it, it's useless. <laughs> you could have a PhD in Buddhism and just suffer like heck, right? So what's the point of it? The point of it is 
that you get good information, you understand intellectually the structures that the Buddha uh, is offering us, and you're not looking for an encyclopedic knowledge of Buddhism that you can impress your neighbors with. You're looking for some really practical intellectual tools which make sense to you in your own life, and then you're applying those tools to your ordinary life, to suffering, to taking care of your parents, whatever, so that your intellect now is in line and it is governing the way you're looking at life and helping you to see why you suffer in the end of suffering. If you leave Buddhist knowledge as just a, uh, a kind of Wikipedia, Buddhipedia or something that you have in your head, so what? <laughs> you know, it's about suffering and the end of suffering. And that's the, the danger of too much. The danger of no study is you don't have the Buddhist teaching, right? You don't have a structure. You don't have, a, you don't have pointers. And, and the, the teaching is fabulous that way. But on the other hand, the danger of too much knowledge is actually you, you get more doubt. You just keep adding to the knowledge collection and you, you start to get more doubt. Or you think you know it, because you've got uh, information, but that's not knowing it. You, you, you know it if you're not suffering. If you're suffering, you don't know it, right? So if you get an A plus in your exam, uh, and you think you're the God's gift to, God, to Buddhism, <laughs> can we say that? <laughs> I don't think we can say that. Anyway, you think you're great, <laughs> and uh, you're really conceited with your A plus, huh? Is that a good result? Is that what you want? Or let's say you get a C minus. You just squeak through like with 52. Is that a C minus? A little bit, 53, 58. Okay, you get a 58, right? And you say, did my best, no problem. And the A plus says to you, you turkey, <laughs> or whatever they do, they insult you, and you say, well, that's your problem. I'm okay. Seems to me a better result, right? <laughs> a much better result. So what is the use of knowledge? Is knowledge just the accumulation of information? Yes, if you're a scholar. Yes, if you're a professor. Yes, if that's your livelihood. Yes, if you're doing comparative studies in religion. Yes, if you're a linguist studying Sanskrit and Pali. Yeah, that's the point point of knowledge. But if you want, if you're using this teaching as a, as a mode of liberation, then you need just enough. You need some, you need enough, but then you need to go deeply into it. So it's about depth rather than breadth. Breadth is about lots of information. Scholars, good. Uh, depth is about a practitioner who takes something like this idea of resistance and looks at that in the mind for a year so that you really understand how the attachment to resistance leads to suffering. That's a different way, that's a different way. And that's the way of the contemplative. That's the way of, of the meditator, of, of the... That's the way of intelligent use of uh, these teachings rather than just intelligence in itself, as, a, as, a, as an artifact, as it were. I observe that my mind tunes into what other people's conversations instead of focusing on what I am doing. 
there's desire to know what other what is going on with them their stories and the latest gossips aha somehow the mind thinks the information is power how do i come overcome these unskillful thoughts and actions well yeah you have to you know if you're I'm not sure if I get this right, but um, gossip can be a sense of just information. It can be it can be not manipulative, um, not harmful. Um, but when gossip becomes voyeurism, right? You know, I I found out about the the divorce of my neighbors. And you know what they did, and you know what they did, and you know, that's voyeurism. I'm, I'm looking with entertainment on the suffering of others. That's a sad state of affairs. What it will lead to, that gossip, will be eventually, you know, you will be afraid that someone's gossiping about you. Or you will be afraid that they might have heard that you're gossiping about them. It'll, it'll condition fear. It won't condition love. It'll condition alienation, right? So, so, and gossip can, you know, information, like if you, if the guy that, the, the vendor that promised me the router, if we go back to that character, um, and I say to you, you know, he wasn't very trustworthy, I wouldn't consider that as gossip. I would consider that, you know, helpful information because we're in a business world, right? But if I really hated the, the, the vendor now, and I told you bad stories about his kids who are on heroin or something like that, and I wanted to destroy his reputation in your mind, that's a different way of functioning, isn't it? That's with the intention to hurt. So in, in the exchange of information, if someone is coming to you, talking about a third party, and you can see the intention is to take delight in their difficulties, do you really want to be a part of that? Will you put your hand up and say, wait, 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 that's, that's unkind. Because if you do that, if you say, no, I'm not going to participate in destructive gossip and cruel gossip in putting other people down, you'll walk away from that feeling proud of yourself. If you don't put your hand up and you buy into it and you listen and say, oh, tell me more. Oh, really? Oh, tell me more, tell me more. You'll walk away feeling dirty. You won't, you won't be proud of yourself. Huh? You might have to watch some Netflix <laughs> or something to get rid of that bad taste in your mind, right? And, and that's the way we operate. If we, if we operate from, from places of separation from others through, through hatred, through racism, through just the destructiveness of gossip in society, it doesn't serve society, that's for sure, but also it doesn't serve us. At the end of the day, you don't, you don't have much pity, you don't have much joy, right? And, and to be loyal, you know, to be loyal to, to friends or, or neighbors by saying, wait a minute, that's not nice, that's not kind. You might lose some friends, but are they good friends? Maybe good to lose them, huh? So, we sometimes have a false sense, if I know something about someone else, I have a, some power now, I have some information. But if it's coming from that sense of divisiveness, it's, it's nasty stuff. It's really not, it's very toxic, really. And those people who use you 
as a kind of gossip mill, once they know this, this guy's not interested, they're not go to you. So then you're freed from that kind of human interaction. But, you know, think about loyalty, compassion, uh, honesty, integrity. These are very important at the end of the day about how you feel about yourself, aren't they? Do I feel, you know, do I feel well within myself? And if not, then, then let's say you do get caught, okay, let's say you get caught up with gossip. It was, it was really interesting. Um, <laughs> and, and then you walk away feeling, like if you're, if you're a, 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 a cynical person and you're insincere, you'll walk away looking for more gossip. But I don't think we're that type of person, right? So let's say you, walk, you got caught up in some, some, you know, whatever about someone and you said things or, you, you know, you, you, you feel sorry. And that's a good thing. That's hiriotipa, that's remorse. Then you go away and then you start to hate yourself. That's, like, like I've been saying, that's not, that's not remorse, that's hatred. So that's when you have to meditate. And the meditation will also be, again, with the same theme, will engage the ideas of non-attachment. So in the gossip situation, I got attached to the excitement of voyeurism and making fun of people or being, being shocked or whatever. I got caught up into that. It was attachment in wrong speech. Then I come away from that and my sense of moral integrity says, that's not right. That's not a good thing. That's an important time to meditate because as that memory comes up, you won't feel good about yourself. And what you can say is, please forgive me. To the, you don't have to say it to them. Say it to yourself, please forgive me. And then I'll try to be more careful in the future. But don't hate yourself because hatred doesn't work either. You, the world has enough hatred. <laughs> don't, don't hate yourself, but take responsibility and say, yeah, I'm going to try to be more careful there. Then, when it happens again, you'll see the attachment to that, and then you go, no, 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 I'm not going there. That's non-attachment. Habit wants to go there. As you don't go there, you walk away feeling fabulous. I didn't do it. I didn't get caught up. And you get a good result. You get a good result. So we do get caught up. We do make mistakes. And that's very important to sit, feel the results of the mistakes, which are not pleasant, and say, oh, this is the karmic result. With Destructive gossip as condition, this is the emotional feeling, a feeling of yuck, not nice. This cause and effect, I'm going to be careful in the future. Guilt, guilt doesn't work. It's just more hatred. We, it doesn't really work. But seeing cause and effect, seeing the pain of unskillful cause will make you very careful in the future of going there again. Just naturally, because you, you don't want to put your hand in the fire again. It hurts. It hurts too much. I don't know if that answers the question, but it's good for all of us to consider, right? I think, Bita, I think that's it. Is there any, anything on the chat? Or are we, are we done? Oh, here, oh, here's a, no. Here's another one, Bita, right at top. A guideline on percentage of time for daily mindfulness and sitting meditation for laity and sangha. 100%. Like, you don't want to be heedless, do you? What percentage of time should you be mindful? 
<laughs> I think a hundred, no? Because that five percent, like if you say ninety-five, that five percent is going to cost you. <laughs> but what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is not control; it's awakening. So the more you do this work, you say it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. Then you're doing twenty-four-seven practice, and what the sitting practice should be doing, it should be enhancing the awakened mind. It's not different. It's different in tone of situation, it's different that it's not complex maybe, it's different that it's protected environmentally and so on. So the circumstance is different, but the essential thing that you're doing is not different. You're awakening to the way things are. And if that's what the meditation is to you, whether you awaken to the breath or you awaken to an incipient argument with your mom, you're still awake to that, right? You're still aware of that. So it should be seamless. That's what you're getting to more and more. If you think the meditation is tranquilizing the mind, yeah, that's okay. But will that tranquility lead to more integrated awareness in ordinary life? Or will it lead to more aversion to ordinary life? That's attachment to tranquility. You get attached to tranquility, you begin to be averse to your responsibilities. That's not a good state of affairs. So tranquility is good. It calms the mind, it rests the mind, it makes the mind happy. But awareness is not dependent on that. Awareness knows tranquility, knows complexity. So, in terms of percentage of time, well, I think if you have time, make sure you meditate in the morning. Because the morning is you're setting up your day, right? So if you can get up before the family gets up, or, or the dog licks your face, or whatever, however, <laughs> however you get up, um, Try to, to notice the mood of the mind when you wake up. What's the mood? Is it negative? Don't go there. Uh, and then meditate and get the mind prepared for the day. Then if you can, end of the day. If you're not too tired, clear, clear out some of the accumulated stress and tension that came up. So those two things, uh, morning and evening, are very good habits. And like begin with a period of time which works for you. Don't say, I'm going to sit for two hours in the morning and an hour and a half in the evening and then never do it because it's too long. <laughs> Start with something that you, you know you can do. Quarter of an hour in the morning, quarter of an hour in the evening and build up on that. So you can't negotiate out of it. If you make it too long, you say, well, it's too long. I'll do it tomorrow. No, 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 no. You don't want to do that. 15 minutes, do it. 15 minutes, do it. And then build up. Build up that way. It's very profitable. Very, very profitable. Okay, Bita, I think it's time. Bita, have you left me? No, they, there you go. Shall we finish with some uh, the meta chant? How would that be? Yes, thank you, Lampo. Okay. You have that on the sheets? This is what should be done? <clears throat> this is what should be done. By one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful 
not proud and demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease, let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world.